We're in part eight of our Discovering the Kingdom series, and I want to begin by drawing your attention to the fill in the blank with a few thoughts. And the first statement that I'm going to make seems a little odd when we look at the world situation, and it is this, God is a God of peace. You go, well, hold on, Pastor, I've read the Old Testament. And quite frankly, there's an awful lot of chaos. There's an awful lot of war this and war that and fight this and fight that. And, and God, you were honestly pretty rough on the Israelites. And, and, and man, it seems like, I don't know if you necessarily would be defined as peaceful. Well, hold on a second. Is not Jesus Christ the living, breathing touchable form of God? Is he not the one that reveals to us the nature of God? And yet he is called the Prince of Peace. God is a God of peace. And you go, okay, so help me then. Help me then. How do I reconcile that with how the world is gone? How do I reconcile that with what I read in Scripture? And I will simply say this. God is interested in peace not calm. Peace and calm are two different things. And I think that we need to be aware of that difference because it might change how we pray. See, what we tend to want, we'll call it peace, but what we tend to want is calm. We say, Lord, whatever is agitating, whatever is tense, can you just stop that so I don't feel bad? I mean, isn't that how a lot of our prayers go? Lord, I don't feel good. Can you stop it and make me feel better? God, our family is at odds. Can you stop it and make me feel better? But what if through the agitation, God is doing something more important? Do you really want calm or do you want peace? Now, I'm going to say something that sounds very extreme, but I think it will help lock it in. For the dominant group, slavery is calm. That doesn't make it right. You see, when Israel was in slavery to Egypt for 400 years, Egypt was relatively calm about it. Yeah? I mean, it was brutal for the Hebrews, but for the Egyptians, it worked for them. They got their stuff built. They took advantage of people. It was calm. God is not interested in calm. He's interested in peace. There was no peace for the Hebrew people. They were in constant torment of being owned by someone else. Therefore, what did God do about it? Well, all of a sudden, he rains down 10 plagues upon Egypt. There was nothing peace, excuse me, there was nothing calm about that. He was killing the firstborn child of every house that did not have the blood of the lamb over the doorframe. It's what we call Passover. None of that is calm. He then opens up the Red Sea and swallows up the Egyptian army. There's nothing calm about that. So why would he do that? Because he was looking for something greater. He was agitating so that true peace would come. He wants true peace. We all seem to be very content. Have you ever had anything blow up in your life and you tell God, okay, we've had enough? You ever told God you had enough? Yeah, I feel like that's my constant prayer, right? Like, whoa, 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 Lord, I've had enough. I've had enough. And, and he says, well, hold on a second. I'm going for something I'm not sure you're going for, right? I am looking for something deeper. I'm looking for total freedom. 
And you go, yeah, but I'm fine with limitation. Thank you very much. I, I'm totally cool. As long as you just stop all the problems, I would feel so much better, right? Now, let me just ask you this. Anybody ever had the opportunity to have a bone rebroken? Anybody have that by the doctor? Okay, uh, I'll tell you this. After you have a bone broken and you have that much trauma and everything is that sore, the last thing you want is them to rebreak it. Right? Why would somebody re-break a bone? Because it wasn't healing right. Yeah? Because the doctors know that if it malforms, you're going to have a limited range of motion. You're not supposed to have a limited range of motion. You're supposed to have full range of motion. When God is dealing with his people, he is interested in your full freedom. You may say, I'm willing to have limited range of motion. He's not. So he will keep breaking things and re-bringing back up trauma issues. You're like, Lord, I'm done with that. And he said, but I'm not done with it. You were built for greater freedom. And so I'm going to keep getting involved in there until you are fully free. I know it feels terrible. What I'm telling you is it's good and it's right. You see, God is a God of peace. Think about how he handled things with Israel. He said, if you follow me, I will bring you peace. If you do not, there is no peace. I will actually have to rebuke you, bring you back into alignment so you can have peace. You may be calm in your sin, but that's still not peace. So I'm going to rattle your cage, allow the enemies to stir you up to bring you back to me. Because God is the only source of good and peace. That's why God is a God of peace. Now, it says in Matthew 5, 9, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What that means is, is when you are a peacemaker, you look like your dad, your heavenly father. But here's what's interesting. What does it look like to be a peacemaker? See, peacemaker means you are making things right. Psalm 34, 14. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Why do you have to pursue and chase after peace? Because in a broken world, peace is always running away. In a broken world, peace is always running away. It means you have to go after it. Being a peacemaker means doing what is difficult to make it right. Are we going to be peacemakers? We ought to be. Do you realize that Satan's whole job has been to destroy our peace? Do you realize that all the fallen angels that follow him have made it their goal to try to ruin our peace? to cause division, to cause fights, to separate the church, to separate brothers from sisters and sisters from brothers. May we never help him do his job, amen? The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this, we are to solve problems, not pick fights. We are to solve problems, not pick fights. You see, as we walk into the book of 1 Corinthians, we jump back 2,000 years to where Paul the Apostle had set up a church four years prior to writing this letter. 
Initially, they loved him, but then they began to rebel against him as their leadership. They realized they liked other leaders better. They didn't like his leadership anymore. They believed that they had now been gifted by the Holy Spirit, and they were smarter than he was, that they were more powerful than he was. They had become so absorbed into their own arrogance that they said, we don't need your leadership. Why don't you step out? He said, because I'm your spiritual father, and I'm not going anywhere. The stuff that is going on in your church is unacceptable. You're totally blind to the amount of damage that you are causing to people. So no, I'm not going to step away. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to leave until we get this stuff settled. He's going to make sure that they have peace, but there's some bad leaders with bad habits, and he's going to address those head on. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 if you have not already? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. And the immediate context when we read into this is Paul's going to bust them for Christians taking other Christians to secular court. And you go, was that really a problem? Yep, sure was. Is it a problem today? Yep, sure is. As a matter of fact, I'm quite convinced that the book of 1 Corinthians could simply be written to us. Yeah? That's what's so shocking. All right, let's go ahead and dive into this. We'll go line by line. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, a Christian against another Christian, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, what are you, incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know? that we will judge angels. How much more then matters pertaining to this life? All right, let's pause. What in the world is he talking about? Man, you try to read this at home, you're reading your devotions, you're like, skip, right? <laughs> Don't know what you're talking about, dude, moving on. All right, I think if we did that, we'd probably miss out on some richness here. So let me, let me explain, and it becomes very, very simple. Paul is correcting them for some bad behavior. And the way that he always corrects is that he brings them back to say, that's not your nature in Jesus. You're not living in alignment with who you really are. When you act worldly, it doesn't match who you are. When you act selfishly, it doesn't match who you are. You are not merely human. You are Christians. And here's his whole point. When you got saved, when you said, Jesus, come rescue me, the Bible says that God forgave your sins and made you a new creation, not no longer merely human. You are now fused with Jesus Christ. You are now partakers of the divine nature. You are now given gifts authority, and power as children of God, you are now no longer merely worldly. You are supernaturally attached. You are supernaturally alive. And if that is your identity, why are you getting mixed up in so much basic garbage? That was his whole point. Every time he corrects, he never says, Dude, you got to try harder and you got to scoop up some stuff. Just follow the rules and regulations, bro. Don't he never says that. He says, after everything God has made you, why are you acting like this? You have everything you need for life and godliness. You have so much grace, so much love. God has been so patient with you. 
why are you acting like this? He always goes back to Christian identity. Who are we in Jesus? And if we are that, why are we acting like we're not? So then he starts saying, all right, let me tell you again who you are. Because I feel like you're chasing after very low stuff. Do you not know that we will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? And that's where we kind of go, I'm sorry, what's that? <laughs> there are a bunch of rabbit holes we could go into about that. And there's a lot of deep things to say. Talking about the 12 apostles sitting on the 12 thrones with Jesus. We could get into all that. But here's the basic answer. There will come a time in the future when God will sort out who his family is and who his enemies are. Do we all know that? There comes a time when God's going to be able to say, all right, we're calling it, we're heading into eternity, I need to know where my team is and where my team is not. That is the great white throne judgment. When he separates those two camps, he gathers his family toward himself and pronounces judgment on his enemies. Yes? When he does that, his family will be around him, and they will be the evidence that the other team could have been family too. Does that make sense? In other words, when he says to somebody, depart from me, I never knew you, we were never close, you did things in my name as a manipulation, but you don't know me. I am not going to receive you. You have been anti-me in your life. You were more interested in self than you were in serving your king. So you need to go. They would then respond back, Nah, you never gave us that type of option. Who's standing right behind him is all the saved and going, actually he did. He was the Messiah that showed up and told us that he loved us so much that he would die for us. And then they would say, yeah, but you made it too hard. And we'd stand behind and wave our hands and go, honestly, all he asked for was submission and surrender. That's the only thing he asked for. Then, at some point, it shifts over to the devil and his angels. Do you know the Bible says that hell and the lake of fire was not created for people? It was created for the devil and his angels. So we know where they're going. Now, unfortunately, a bunch of people want to be on that team, right? And so they're going to go there too. But when he sends them away, after they had backstabbed him in heaven, after they spent their entire existence trying to ruin what he loves, when he sends them away from him, we will be standing right by his side as evidence and proof that they didn't win. Because here's what our present says. You spent your entire existence trying to separate me from God. Guess what? I'm right by his side. You have spent your entire existence trying to bend me against my God, but I stayed close. You have spent your entire existence trying to convince me God's a bad guy, but I see him as my loving father. You failed. And we stand in judgment of the fallen angels in that moment. Paul said, if that is our future, it is in a sense our present reality. And if we are that much involved with God, why are we dealing with stupid stuff? That's the whole passage. All right? Let's keep moving forward. Verse 4. So if you have such court cases, 
Why are you laying them before those who have no standing in the church? Now, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Nope, but brother goes to law against brother, and you're doing it in front of unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Okay, let's pause for a moment. He's talking about taking things to court in front of non-Christians. Now, I want to tell you what he is saying and what he's not saying. What he is not saying is that the court system is bad or wrong. If you know anything about Paul the Apostle, he used the court system, right? The whole reason he ended up in Rome was he appealed to Caesar and said, you beat me as a Roman citizen illegally, and I'm going to take you to court. Paul's not anti-court. He's not anti-justice system. He's not anti-legal system. He used it. That is not what he is saying. And here's another thing he is not saying. Because evil things have happened throughout history because of misreading this scripture. What do I mean? Here's what he didn't say. Oh, so if we have a criminal activity happening in the church, like a molestation, we'll just keep it in-house. We'll handle it ourselves. Uh, heck no. That is not happening. Because Here's what's so embarrassing. The secular world had to impose a law on the Christian community to say, no, you have to be mandatory reporters. Why in the world would they have to push that on us? Why would we not be the first ones to sign up and say, you know what, we're actually already in our hearts mandatory reporters? Do you guys know what a mandatory reporter is? It means that if anyone that is a minor has a crime committed against them, you don't keep it quiet. You go immediately to the authorities and you allow them to handle it because you're too biased and you're too close to it. That's what it says. That's what we are at Bridgeway. But shouldn't the Christian community not say, oh, let's hush it up and oh, it's gonna make the church look bad and, and we don't wanna have that aired out there and blah. That is garbage. That's how darkness stays dark. You understand what I mean? What we need to do is bring it out and say, we need to have a proper justice system solve it. So it does not say that. Here's what it does say. There is stuff that goes public, disputes, disagreements, hurts and pains that have no place being in a court system because all you're doing is looking to feel better and get your way and your rights. It is not a criminal matter, it's not even a serious civil matter. You're offended. And when you're offended, and you're a Christian, and you're offended by another Christian, why are you dragging it out in front of the world? And he's like, well, are you trying to say they shouldn't air dirty laundry? Well, kind of, but not for the reasons you think. Because here's what Paul is most concerned about. The reputation and testimony of Jesus Christ. And he goes, when you go out there and you say to a secular world, hey, can you guys tell us what's right and wrong? You just undercut the entire gospel. He said, do you understand what I'm trying to do here? I spend every day ministering to people in the secular community and I tell them, my God is king. He gives us true wisdom. The Holy Spirit knows better than you. 
you actually have a sin problem, and you say, no, I don't, and I say, yes, you do, and you say, no, you don't, and I say, but my Jesus said so, and my Jesus knows better than you. While I'm sharing that message, you're taking Christian stuff to court and asking them for their wisdom that they know better, and you're undercutting everything I'm doing. Stop it. You keep making it about you. You're so caught up in being right, you're so caught up in your rights that you forget it's not about you. It never was. It's always been about him. Whose agenda are you on? Why are you taking this to court in the first place? Can you not have the humility to bring it before the church and go, hey, in our community, that person hurt me. Can we not talk about it? Can we not sort it out? Are we not that mature? Corinthians, you've been telling me you have supernatural wisdom and that you're better than me and you don't need my leadership and yet you don't even have the wisdom to solve your own problems. Come on, guys. You're not even thinking this stuff through. Is everybody tracking with me? Yeah. All right, all right. Now, the, I, I'm gonna jump on a soapbox for a moment. Is that all right? Okay, yeah, yeah, you guys don't, yeah. I ha, yeah, I, I have a microphone. What, you can't stop, what are you talking about? Okay. <clears throat> I have a bit of a pet peeve, and it is this. Because of our desire for independence, and our willingness to divide over it, the church today in the Protestant community cannot follow the Bible. And that really, really bothers me. We cannot do the very thing the Bible tells us to do. Let me give you an example on why. Notice I said the Protestant community. I don't think the same problem happens as much in the Catholic church or in the Orthodox church. And here's why. When the Western world got really into independence and everybody is their own person and everybody's opinions are equal, we started having all kinds of division. We started dividing into denominations and then we started dividing into churches and then we started dividing from Methodist against Baptist, which is Baptist against Episcopalian and Episcopalian against Anglican and Anglican against, right? When we started doing all that, we shattered ourselves and all became independent fiefdoms. And now here's the problem with that. Like we all love to be with our people and doing our own thing and being reaffirmed in what we believe, but here's the problem. Predator guy walks into the church and starts attacking on women, young women. You know what happens practically? Here's how it goes. I end up finding out about it and I'm like, hey, predator guy, get over here. What I'm noticing is that you are preying upon our young women. You cannot do that. Do you understand? I'm about to drop the hammer on you because it's unacceptable. You know what predator guy does? Goes to the church next door. And then he goes to the church next door and ultimately preys on young women. And then they find out about it. You know what they say? You cannot do that. You're out. You know where he goes? To the other church across the street. And then they say, after you've preyed on women and damaged women, you can't do that here. So what does he do? Goes to another church. You know how many churches are in the greater Sacramento region? a lifetime's worth. He's never held accountable. There is no ability in unity for me to get on the horn, talk to all the other pastors, and shut this garbage down. There is no way 
Because no one's willing to submit to the authority of the church. Everyone just bails when they disagree. So how in the world are we supposed to do church authority or church discipline or accountability? We can't do it. Everyone just walks. Now, that is my soapbox. Here's my point. My point is, way, the way that Christianity is set up is it was supposed to be in a family community where there is peer pressure, where getting removed out of church was a big deal because it was the only place that you could have your friends, your family, your blessing get prayed for, right? That, it was supposed to be the coolest place on earth. And so when someone was acting out and hurting someone, that was a serious threat. You don't get to be with us anymore. We're not dealing with you anymore. And then you treat them as an outsider, right? Now, how do we handle disagreements? Because we're gonna, we're gonna get hurt by each other. How do we handle this kind of stuff? Well, you know what? It's actually one word. It's called communication, right? I know this is tough for some of us. Communication means we talk about it. Now, that is not at all what we want to do. Because some of us are conflict avoiders, yeah? So what we want to do is stuff it, if we're one personality, just don't even deal with it. Don't even talk about it. They totally hurt you, just internalize it. You know the problem with that? Is that you ultimately blow up in your own life, right? I mean, you ultimately become mean and nasty to your family, but you keep internalizing it. Then there's other personalities that are like, you know what? I don't want to get into it with you, but I will slander your name everywhere else, and I'll just destroy you by reputation. That's not acceptable either. I understand the temptation, right? Because how do we handle it when someone hurts us? Well, let me tell you how I handle it. I don't want to get too Lord of the Rings on you, right? <laughs> but I got a bit of a Gollum problem, all right? And here's what I mean. If you haven't seen that movie, there's this little character that has a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde problem, kind of a multi-personality problem. And it, this is how it goes in my life. When someone hurts me significantly, or they attack my ministry, or they attack how I handle things, this is how my dialogue goes. Almost the first thing that happens is a little voice in my head goes, you know what, Lance? You blew it, man. I, I'm not even sure why you're in leadership. Like, this is really bad. And then all of a sudden, it morphs, and it goes, I could slash their tires. <laughs> Dude, if I cut the brake line and they die, whatever. <laughs> and you're like, well, hold on a second. That was really radical, right? You just went from, like, self-deprecating to, like, I'm going to kill someone. Like, that's not healthy. And then I slip back over to the other side. Oh, Lance, you shouldn't do that. You're like, you think? right? And then I shift over to the other side. I'm like, but do you know what they did? That's right. I will punch them in the throat, right? Okay. So I understand this idea that when you get hurt, you want to lash out. You want to cause them pain. But what's interesting is what you don't want to do is communicate. If we're going to be a community, we actually have to talk about stuff, right? Because I don't think fight or flight is totally appropriate. I think communication is appropriate and we end up talking stuff out. And here's the problem. Most of us in this church, when you get wounded by someone, you go, I don't want to talk to them. I don't even know them. And there is the problem. How are we supposed to handle things within a community if we don't know each other? You don't know if you can trust them or not. There's not a cohesion, which is why, as a community, we need to keep getting to know each other more and more and more so it feels like family. 
then we can talk stuff out. Let me share uh, another piece to this. We have a modern challenge that I don't believe any other generation before us has ever had. And it's this, we're getting wounded and hurt by people we will never meet. So, JoeBob755 <laughs> trolls you online, drops a bomb on you, ruins your life, and disappears into the darkness. You will never meet JoeBob155 or whatever the heck his handle is. You are now carrying the weight of garbage on your spirit and you cannot talk to him because he never intended to talk to you in the first place. We have a global community, we have a social reality where people are hurting us and you will never be able to reconcile. What do we do with that? We have traded our ability to know everything going on in the world without realizing our shoulders are the same size. Does that make sense? And we're carrying this heaviness and don't know how to process it. So what we do is we get angrier and angrier and we lash out in general to everybody. You see, the Bible says there is a way to handle church problems. Anybody ever been, had the word Matthew 18 thrown at them? Everybody kind of goes, Matthew 18. Okay, here's what it means. It means in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18, there are steps given on how to handle if you've been sinned against. Now, what is sinned against? It means that they hurt you, they spoke badly of you, they defrauded you, they took some, they did something wrong to you. How do you handle that in church? Well, Jesus lays it out. He says it's a three-step process. First thing is you actually have to go to the person and talk about it, right? You go to them and you confront them, not in a mean way. You assume it's miscommunication or you're missing something. So you come in in a humble way and go, hey, what the heck's going on? Like, why are you after me? What is happening here? And they go, oh, you misunderstood or whatever. If it gets reconciled, great. If they say, I don't like you, you're like, all right, I can't solve that, right? So you end up going and you bring two or three witnesses. Now, when it says witnesses, you can't always have witnesses to the actual crime, right? A lot of times that's private. But you do need two or three witnesses of people that are respectable or wise. You get them involved. Go, hey, come here. Can you come in here and listen to what's going on with this? They listen to both sides. And then they go, whoa, 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 hold on. John, I don't think you're seeing this right. And Rick, I don't think you're seeing this right. Here's kind of what we see. It should solve it. If it does not, and they're like, you know what? I still hate that guy. I think you guys are biased. It has to go to church leadership. That's the last step. You take it. Now, in a church like this, that would become the elder board, right? So you would bring it before the elder board who are impartial. They're not emotionally involved. And they examine the evidence, and they're like, okay, you're out of line. You need to fix this. This is not okay what you're doing. If they will not listen, they don't get to be a part of the fellowship. Does that make sense? Jesus laid this stuff out there. But the bottom line to all of it is we've got to talk through stuff. If we don't talk through and we stuff it or flame people back, we're gonna get into more trouble, yeah? All right, let's keep moving forward. Pick it up in verse eight. But you yourselves, Corinthians, you wrong and defraud even your Christian brothers and sisters. Or do you not know 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, well, that was a long list, right? What do we do with stuff like that? Well, well, first of all, put it in context, right? Because here's what we normally do. We read a list like that and we go, wait, who does God hate? Have you noticed that? That's immediately where we go. And then the second thing we do is we go, wait, am I on that list? And we start looking at all, right? And we're like, oh, good, woo, I'm not on that list, but I know people on that list, right? Then we go to that, our neighbor's on that list, and we start blaming and judging other people. All right, the context of this is very similar to the Ten Commandments. Not sure the last time you read the Ten Commandments, but did you know how they're organized? There's ten of them. (laughs) The first four are about our vertical relationship with God. It's things like, do not have any other gods in front of me, don't make any images, keep my Sabbath holy, right? The last six are about horizontal community relationships And those are things like do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not covet, okay? So the whole entire Ten Commandments is what? What Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said the entire biblical code is based on the premise of loving God and loving people. Anything that is not God's nature is not honoring to him or does not treat people lovingly is what we call sin, right? Let's just make it as simple as possible. And if you're gonna do the sin stuff, you're gonna get in trouble for it. Why? Because you're not here to hurt other people. So Paul nails them to the wall and goes, you guys, you're so concerned about everyone else doing wrong. I'm gonna take them to court. I'm gonna nail them to the wall. You're doing the same things. Well, my sin's not as bad as their sin. What are you talking about? And this is a funny thing. We look at this, this list and we're like, oh good, I'm not on that one. There's more lists. You're on the other one. Right? I mean, it's, these are not exhaustive. These are samples. But when we go through this, he said, these types of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, it's supposed to be a warning and it's supposed to be scary. What does it mean? We could get into all kinds of things about the kingdom of God, but here's the gist. When God's going to do stuff here on this planet, he wants to involve his family. But if you're the one that just hurts everybody, you're probably not on his team, and he certainly can't use you. You don't get to be a part of what God's doing when your identity is wrapped up in hurting people. That's what it means. And he starts calling out some stuff. So he gives us this list, right? And some of these terms have been misused by people to try to kind of beat up other people. So can we just open it up a little bit? The, there's, there's a bunch of different types. There are four sexual sins, and you're like, ooh, here we go. Those are the bad ones, yeah? I can gossip all day, but don't do a sex sin, right? All right, just so you know, gossip and lying's on the other list, Okay. So we pick up these four, right? And we got one that says the sexually immoral. And you're like, what does that mean? It's an umbrella term for anything that God doesn't like that you need to do sexually, right? He's like, no, 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 no. Originally, the term meant go to prostitutes 
and then it became kind of a general term, and you can kind of interchange it. Then he says adulterers, and you're like, okay, I get that. You're married. You're having sex outside of marriage. Not good. Then he drops two bombs of words that we don't even know what they mean. And he, let me give you an example. The first word is malakoi. Malakoi, or malakos, which is the other version, malakoi means soft, effeminate boy. You're like, I'm sorry, what's that? What does that mean? Well, we don't really know because there's not a lot of context we can grab. But the best guess that scholars have is that in the ancient world, there was something called a pederastic relationship. Now, this is a little bit creepy, and I'll try to keep it as PG-13 as possible, all right? There were men in society that could hire young boys to be their sexual partners for years. Those boys would then give the demeanor of being much more effeminate for partnership reasons, and they would connect with them. That boy is a call boy, and he is effeminate. That's what they believe this term means, okay? Now, you go, okay, that's, that's a little unsettling. Can we please move on? All right? The next word doesn't have any prior uses in ancient literature. We don't even know what the word means. But here's what it says in Greek. Men that have sex. That's, that's the word. And you're like, I'm sorry, what's that? It's actually a derogatory term for sex, and so it's a man-sexers. What's that? Uh, I don't know. When they partner them together, they went, okay, hold on, here's what I think he's trying to say. You have the younger portion that's involved. What about the older dude? Is he not in trouble too? Yes. He would be the aggressor. He would be the one activating it, and they don't know whether or not it means men who have sex or men who have sex with men, but they think in the context, it means that guy who has hired the boy. Got that? All right. That, because of all that, is why it uses a phrase, male prostitutes. But it's not just male prostitutes with women. It ends up calling it homosexual offenders. And now the reason why I'm sharing all this information is mostly just bless your day. No, that's not true. <laughs> The reason I'm sharing this information <laughs> is because I believe we need to have an awful lot of humility when we start saying what the Bible says about a bunch of stuff and throwing it around loosely and using it as a weapon and a hammer on people. Hold up. Are you sure you know what you're talking about? All right. Let's back up a little bit and go, here's what I'm trying to figure out in Scripture. All right. What do all those have in common? You're hurting other people. And you go, that's not true. When it's adultery, it could be two people that agree on that. Yeah, but you're hurting each other. Just because you agree on it doesn't mean you're not hurting each other. You can have an agreement and still hurt each other. That's not the point. Then he says there are four defrauding sins. And I, I'm going to list these out. They're a little bit, uh, I'm going to try to make it as easy as possible. First thing he says is some of you are covetous idolaters. That means... You love stuff more than people, and you're willing to use them to get stuff. Second issue, thieves and robbers. Whatever you do, you're taking from what other people have and putting it in your account. Three, greedy swindlers. 
That means you take things by deception. Four, slanderers or revilers. That is emotional thievery. I take from your reputation and put it in mine. Now I'm better and you're worse. Does that make sense? All right. Now I understand the terms are weird. Not many of us use the word, I've been swindled. <laughs> right? If it weren't for those kids, right? You know what I'm saying? Like it's so odd. Like we're in 1840, we're like a swindler got me. And you're like, what? <laughs> okay. I understand they're weird words, but the concepts you understand, yeah? It's taking. Okay, why would you take? Because you're selfish. That hurts people. And then he puts in one last term. Drunkards. You're like, hold up. How did they get on the list? Right? Let me be very clear. The Greek world and the Jewish world had no problem with consumption of alcohol. They had a problem with drunkenness. Why? Because drunkenness leads to bad stuff. And you're like, well, not always. Mm, I disagree with you. And here's why. I'm not sure what you and God think is bad are the same things. Because you go, dude, I have gotten drunk and I just passed out. So quite frankly, I didn't even do anything. Okay, I appreciate you. <laughs> we still have a problem. Okay, and here's why. Here's the ultimate problem with drunkenness. It's the epitome of selfishness. Because here's why. It says, I'm out, everyone take care of me because I may do stupid things and I need you to handle it. I need you to take me home. I need you to watch over me. And then if I do anything, I'm not going to hold the blame because I was drunk. Then you go, yeah, but what if it's not those? Here's the other problem with it. It says to God, I'm off. You can't use me today. I'm doing me stuff. As long as I'm drunk, dude, I can't do your ministry. Wait, hold on. Why are you on this planet to be used by God? So what is this whole I'm out thing? Once again, I'm not quite sure drunkenness is the problem you think it is. I think it is a very similar problem to what we are all doing every time we tell God we're not available. Yeah? All right, let's finish it out. Just when the Corinthians were about to use this stuff against each other, even though he was trying to bust them, he blows them out of the water. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed... You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What was his point? Don't you dare point that finger. You forget where you come from. You forget about the fact that you're a sinner just like everybody else. Where do you get off talking about everybody else in church being a sinner? You're trying to pull a speck out of their eye and hitting them with a log in your own eye. Don't forget who you are. You don't get to walk around and be the sin police. Leadership has to watch some stuff. That is not for you to carry. Because you're dealing with your own stuff, are you not? And how do you want God to deal with you on your sin? You want him to be patient with you. You want him to be gentle with you. All right, can we do that for each other? Can we appreciate the process? Can we allow people to work things out? Do we need to draw boundaries? Yes. But shouldn't we be loving each other to be better? I think that we should. All right. So we close out. I've kind of shared with you that this year, what I kind of wanted to do each week was to kind of give you an aha, a couple aha moments where you discover that maybe we're not seeing it like God sees it. So let me just share this. I shared it earlier. I'll just repeat it and we'll close. I think 
as Christians, we need to be a little bit more concerned about God's reputation in how we act because I'm not quite sure we're very concerned about it. We're still kind of thinking about what's best for us. But when we do mean things publicly, it doesn't reflect very well on Jesus. We gotta think through that one. I believe, as Paul would say, we're better than that. We're built for something better than that. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You are so loved, so forgiven, so held close to God. Why are you acting like that? It just doesn't fit. Let's close in prayer. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? Heavenly Father, we submit to you now. And we ask, Lord, that we would be the kind of people that are billboards of love for you. That, Lord, that people could look at us and realize that you love them. That they would look at us and they would see lives submitted to the king. That they would look at us and they would want to know more about you. Because, God, what everything has always been about is you. And so we, we submit our lives to you afresh. Maybe in this moment, Lord, while we have a little bit of clarity, we want to say yes to you and no to self. God, I know that a lot of my friends here today have been hurt. And God, it makes us want to lash out. We think bad thoughts. We say bad things. Would you heal us? Would you be our source of restoration so we might be able to release and not become judge, jury, and executioner? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.